<laughs> Can you tell me a, a little bit about how you guys got into doing this? Oh, geez. oh wow. Origin story. <laughs> it was a long time ago. It was over 10 years ago. Oh. 12 years. Yeah, almost 13, Jim. Yeah, almost 13 years yeah. ago. And we sat yeah. in a coffee shop here in New York City. And um, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you the truth. We were both in, in academe or uh-huh. aspiring to be an academic. Jim was already teaching at that point at AMDA. And I was trying to get into academe. And I knew that you had to have something called research. So I didn't know what research was. So we hatched this plan to start doing these recordings and see what would come of it. Found a we common had... love in Shakespeare. And so we were like, let's do a we podcast. So much... I know. I know. That's, this is back when they were new. Nobody knew what yeah. a podcast was. Nobody I know. Ever that's it. kind of amazing that you've been doing a podcast for 10 years. That's amazing. Yeah. I know. We've never made a single dollar. So um, we just like doing it. And we've been doing yeah. it ever since. And nice. it's nice. It's been fun. We've talked to some amazing people yes. like yourself. Hello and welcome to the State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And today on the program, we're joined by Miriam Laub. I have to ask you, is that how you say your last name? Is it Lobby or Laub? <laughs> it's Lauber. Wait, that's amazing. So Lauber? Lauber, yeah, with a schwa at the end. Yeah, Lauber. Oh, wow. that's, that's, are you German? Uh, yes. Well, my mother was born and raised in India. My father was born and raised in Germany, and she got a scholarship to the University of Frankfurt, hence Lauba, my dad's name. Yeah. Oh, wow. Were you born in Germany? No, I was born in Pittsburgh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you got you got your start in Pittsburgh. Is that where you fell in love with Shakespeare? I would say it's the first time I encountered it. I, um, of course, in high school, read it, and I actually did fall in love with that, uh, the reading of it. But the first show I ever saw, which sticks in my mind, the first Shakespeare I ever saw was Macbeth. And at the time, I think it was called the Three Rivers Shakespeare Festival, uh, was doing a production. And I, I remember it distinctly, the beginning of it, where there was this net that kind of was across the stage, this this large net. And there were three spots on this net. And when the show began the witches kind of curled out of the net like three spiders. And that's how the show began. I'll never forget it because you didn't expect them to be there. Or at least I didn't as a high school student. Yeah. And so that's where my love of Shakespeare began. I think I fell in love with the words, the rhythm. Yeah. It's amazing. I love love this idea because I'm I'm imagining what it was like at the production meeting where they came up with this idea for the nets. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, it's going to be so great. We're going to have the witches unfurl from this net. Little did they know that what an impact it would have on, on your life. 30 years later. Yes. No, for sure. It's incredible what moments in Shakespeare plays, uh, I guess that's true of most plays, but in Shakespeare plays in particular, what they can do, that they resonate so deeply. But I think falling in love with, you know, I at the same time um, was working on musicals. And I think the same thing is true of Shakespeare. There is a rhythm to the words and you can sort of get lost. You can feel like you are inside of them. And that is true with music as well, that you feel inside of the words somehow. And I think that sort of visceral feeling of the words being inside of you is what keeps me going back to it. You're also a musician. Sure, sure, sure. Awesome Cleopatra song. That was fantastic. Yes, yes. I guess we should back up. I can tell you how that came about, but we can back up if you'd like. You tell me which way you want to go. No, tell us how it came about and then we'll back up. Okay, so I got a Fox Fellowship through TCG um, 
And what I decided eventually, it wasn't what I started out thinking what I was going to do, but what I, what I ended up doing was, um, you know, I had played a bunch of Shakespeare roles at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival and other, other places. And you always find yourself waiting in the wings, right? And thinking about these, um, these sort of unwritten scenes. So what I wanted to do was to take fe the female characters in Shakespeare that I played and write these sort of unwritten words that were influenced by my time inside of the characters backstage. I will say that that song, Cleopatra to the Romans. Uh, I think it's called which, Stay and Fight. Stay and Fight, a letter from Cleopatra to the Romans, which Carmel Dean wrote the music to a, a dear friend. That came about because, uh, you know, this, this kind of feeling of what would, what would Cleopatra say to the Romans if she had the chance? And also this kind of feeling, uh, I love Shakespeare's uh, Antony and Cleopatra, but even Shakespeare tells that tale mostly from the Roman point of view. And so what would Cleopatra say if she could write a letter to the Romans? And I started this project in 2015, and then we had the election of 2016, and I was thinking about this, and it was the day of the, uh, the Women's March, and I started writing that song that day, the day of the Women's March. So that was um, an additional yeah. inspiration. It was an additional inspiration, and sort of substituting in some ways Caesar with the Caesar that claimed to be in 2016. Yeah. So um, that's how that song came to be. But they were all influenced. I wrote a letter from um, Celia to Rosalind and a letter from, let's see, from Hermione to her unborn child. So these were all songs. And I got, uh, I asked uh, musicians to put them to music. And so that was a great collaboration. And that I'm was all due to a Fox Fellowship. I, I love that. That's really unique um, and interesting. I'm just curious as to what Celia would write to Rosalind, because there is... <laughs> Well, I, I wish I had the words in front of me, but writing you this letter and posting it on a tree, maybe that will make you listen to me. Why are you running around in these crazy pants continuing to, I, know, I, I can't remember, to right, chase this right, boy. Right. So, so um, uh, the verses, I would, I would crawl into your bed and we would tell each other stories. It's all I ever needed to feel safe and known and not alone. Your giggle in the darkness, your fingers wrapped in mine, swimming through our dreams like Juno swans into the dawn. And that is a line from Shakespeare, swimming through our dreams like uh, Juno swans. If I'm not mistaken, it's when Celia is defending Rosalind to her father. We too were like Juno swans. And when Rosalind gets married, that suddenly that friendship becomes very different, right? They were a twosome and suddenly there's a, somebody else in the picture and that relationship changes, right? So it's this pay into female friendship and what happens when it changes. Right. Uh, and so you were in Oregon for 16 years? I was at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. I was. Um, Amazing. Under, under the artistic direction of both Libby Apple and uh, Bill Rausch. Yeah, yeah. And so, so how was that to have a home for 16 years? That must have been amazing. Yeah. So my husband was also an actor there. And it was, you know, at the time, I, I can't speak to it now, right? I'm speaking to when I was there. It was a company of 100 actors. And we did 11 shows in rep, usually five 
of them were Shakespeare, four to five of them every year were Shakespeare. So you could be in rep doing, uh, so one year I was doing Cleopatra and uh, also the world premiere of Head Over Heels. Those two things happened the same year in the same season. And the Shakespeare would always influence whatever else you were doing. The group of actors that were there were extraordinary. Also the artists, playwrights, um, directors that came through, just some extraordinary human beings and yeah, artists. And it also was the the birthplace of the Play On series, yeah? It was, yes. I think you came to us through the Play On podcast. I came to you, yes, I think through, yes, through Next Chapter Podcast. I was the senior producer of the Next Chapter Podcasts for um, about almost two years, a year and a half. And I produced the first, uh, I think it was the first six of the podcasts. So there's Play on Shakespeare, and then there's Next Chapter Podcasts. And Play on Shakespeare was born at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival uh, because Louis Douthat began it. And she at the time was the head of new works at Oregon Shakespeare Festival and dramaturgy. And the Hits Foundation came to her and, and, and bottom line was trying to to translate Shakespeare, to make the words so that uh, words that don't have a meaning today, that you, she got modern playwrights to translate the plays into what would be modern speech. Now that sounds heretical, right? To those yeah. of us that are, we've, that love we've Shakespeare. Done, we've actually inter- in, interviewed Dave. We've done a lot of work on the Play On podcast. I think it was Great. Uh, Aditi Kapil. We yes. And, so and yet- there are some people who think it's heretical. Yeah, I, and I will tell you, right, I of course don't, clearly, because I've been working on it, but the first time when this whole thing was presented, you think, oh, this is no, just no. But then there are two reasons uh, why I think it's extraordinary. Well, there's more than two, but I'm going to give you two. One is that as actors and directors, we get to spend time with Shakespeare, a lot of time. Playwrights don't. And so what was kind of incredible was that the playwrights got to spend this time with Shakespeare picking it apart like we do, you know, digging through it. And what does this mean? And what does it mean now? And why is it important? And how would we say that? Like all these things that we do as actors all the time and directors have to do. Well, the playwrights got to do it. So they spend their time with Shakespeare and they find it incredible. And something that Louis always says is that it's not only the translation, it's also the next play they write, having just spent all this time with Shakespeare, which I think is an extraordinary reason in and of itself to do yeah. to do this project. The other reason is that, um, well, I'm going to give you two other reasons, that you end up working with modern playwrights. So there's Ellen McLaughlin, who did Pericles, who translated Pericles. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So it's Pericles through the poetry of Ellen McLaughlin. Same with Lear, Marcus Gardley's Lear, the poetry of Marcus Gardley through Lear. So you get these incredible playwrights and their use of modern language in filtered through Shakespeare. It's, it's, um, and when you say them, you go, oh, this feels like another kind of poetry. And that too is worth it. And then the third reason is that I think it's a really also a great way to allow people to get hooked in so that, you know, people often say that they're afraid of it, right? Uh, I don't understand it. Uh, And it is just part of a dialogue of, yes, you, you, Everybody can understand this. This is for everybody. Shakespeare wrote for us all, for human beings. 
And it allows that conversation to happen and allow people to feel like it's okay to say, I don't understand this. What does this mean? So for those three reasons, I think it's extraordinary. Well, I have yeah. a question about, have you yeah. ever been in a play on version of a Shakespeare play? I've done readings of them. I've never done a full production. Of course, there have been full productions. Right, yeah. Um, but no, I've produced them. So I've been in the midst of them, but I personally have only ever done readings, not a, not a full production. I think that's our next step is to find an actor who's been in play on version of Winter's Tale and regular Winter's Tale and then yes. compare and yes. contrast. Yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. Or do side-by-side -side readings um, where you do uh, a monologue from uh, Shakespeare and a monologue from the translation. Yeah. Okay, I, and then there's the podcasts, which have been... Well, yeah, absolutely. So tell us about the podcasts. So this was the brainchild of Michael Goodfriend. Um, Michael Goodfriend is the director of fiction at Next Chapter Podcast. And the first fiction podcast that he wanted to do were the play on projects. He knew Louis Douthat and he went to Louis and he was like, Louis, I'd like to make podcasts of these play on translations. Can we do that? And Louis said, yes. So through the pandemic and continuing now, they're, they're continuing to be made. These incredible translations of these podcasts are being made and they're not they're not just readings of the plays they really are like a film without a picture so the sound is a three-dimensional sound uh, along with Shakespeare's beautiful words and we every time we do a podcast you know we're working with the playwright and a director and a sound designer and a voice and text director. So it's like really producing these plays. And the only thing that you're not doing is you're not seeing it. So we have a week of rehearsal and then a week of um, recording it. So it's been an extraordinary, extraordinary journey. And yeah, the brainchild of Michael Goodfriend. And they're ongoing. They're ongoing. So Macbeth translated by Magdalia Cruz, Pericles by Ellen McLaughlin, Midsummer by Jeff Witte, Coriolanus by Sean San Jose, King Lear by Marcus Gardley, Twelfth Night by Alison Carey, Henry V uh, by Lloyd Suh, and Measure for Measure by Aditi Brennan Kapil. And then I think right now they're working on The Winter's Tale by Tracy Young. All by Shakespeare, translated by all these incredible modern day playwrights. Yes. Ah, well, that is a marvelous segue into the piece that you've chosen to share with us today. You know, it's so funny. It's act three, scene two. So it's the trial scene. And I, there's two in that scene, right? The one at the top and the one at the end. And I think the, the one at the top of the scene is the one I, I, would, I would read for you. It's when she enters the court and they say, okay, what do you have to say for yourself? What has uh, she been accused of? She's been accused of adultery. Her husband, King Leontes, has accused her with sleeping with his best friend, Polixenes, who was visiting at court. And that the baby that she recently carried to term was Polixenes and not Leontes. That's what he accuses her of. Falsely. Falsely. Absolutely and I, falsely. And I think we know that going into the trial scene. You know, it's interesting, uh, the evidence, right? <laughs> what we know is that Paulina, all the people in the play speak for her and say, no, this isn't true. Polixenes says, everybody says, so we, have, we haven't seen any adultery. So no, right? We, as an audience, yes, I think it's fair to say that we know that she is innocent. 
But yet she's dragged in front of the court. She's dragged. She's just given birth. She's thrown in prison. She's kept away from her son. They have a son together. She she's not allowed to see her son. She's pregnant. She gives birth in jail. The baby is taken. Polina, her dear friend and member of the court, takes the baby to Leontes, hoping that the baby will change his mind. And in fact, Leontes says that the the, the baby has to be um, uh, killed and takes the baby away. Yeah. So yeah, so she, Hermione is dragged, dragged into court. And, you know, she makes, it's one of those things, right, that we don't, think about like right after childbirth in and she talks about it in the second speech that the her everything hurts and not only does her body hurt now her her soul aches and that's what um that's how she enters the court with the speaking body and soul and the stakes at this point for her are are very much life and death right because they are life and death what she ends up saying is, is that it's not about death. It's about honor. I don't care anymore. I have nothing left to, you've stripped me of everything. I have nothing to live for, but I care about honor. So that's the speech. And this is Miriam Lauba reading Hermione from The Winter's Tale. And it is act three, scene two. Since what I am to say must be but that which contradicts my accusation, and the testimony on my part no other but what comes from myself, it shall scarce boot me to say, not guilty. Mine integrity, being counted falsehood, shall, as I express it, be so received. But thus... If powers divine behold our human actions as they do, I doubt not then, but innocence shall make false accusation blush and tyranny tremble at patience. You, my Lord, best know, whom least will seem to do so, my past life hath been as continent, as chaste, as true as I am now unhappy, which is more than history can pattern, though devised and played to take on spectators. For behold me, a fellow of the royal bed, which owe a moiety of the throne, a great king's daughter, the mother to a hopeful prince, here standing to prate and talk for life and honor for, who please to come and hear. For life, I prize it as I weigh grief, which I would spare. For honor, tis a derivative from me to mine, and only that I stand for. I appeal to your own conscience, sir. Before Polixenes came to your court, how I was in your grace, how merited to be so. Since he came, with what encounter so uncurrent I have strained to appear thus, if one jot beyond the bound of honor, or in act or will that way inclining, hardened be the hearts of all that hear me, and my nearest of kin cry fie upon my grave. Thank you. Miriam, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Miriam, as you were reading this, I think for the first time, and this is a this is a speech that's very familiar to many. But for the first time, I I really heard Hermione say, "Tis a derivative from 
me to mine and to really understand the weight and the importance of that. It was the first time that light bulb turned on for me. Thank you. What does that mean for you, that line? Well, I'm going to tell you both personally and what I what I think it means to her. So I think for Hermione, again, this idea that she has two children, right? And if I can't leave them, if I can't be with them, the one thing I can give to them, pass on to them, is my honor, that they come from honor, and that honor is important. My honor is the one thing I can give to my children. So, okay, and now I'm going to tell you a very personal story. So uh, when I was performing Hermione, and, I, and I've played Hermione and Paulina, as it happens, but when I was performing Hermione, uh, my husband was playing Podlixenes, and we, in fact, became pregnant. And then somewhere along the line there, I had a miscarriage. And so I would, before the miscarriage, I would sit backstage and I would talk to my unborn child. I would say, this is going to be, I'm going to go up and say the speech. This is not about you. You're okay. We're okay. It's all okay. Right. And I think that same kind of conversation that I was having with my unborn child is a conversation that Hermione must have had with her unborn child in jail, saying, it's going to be okay. We're okay. I love you. Don't worry. You have my honor. You have my words. You have my spirit. It's okay. Your father will love you, which is what she believes, right? Your father will love you, you know? So this conversation that she has had, I think, with her unborn child, she now brings into the court saying, this is important to me. I don't care if you kill me, but you need to own up to the fact that I am innocent. So that, yeah. She returns to it in her other speech. Yeah. Yeah. Sir, spare your threats. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can finish it with for you if you want. I have that sitting in front of me because that is the, you know, they go through this sort of sham trial. Leontes consults the Oracle, but he ends up not believing the Oracle. The Oracle comes in and says she's innocent. And he says, no, no, uh, that's not, I don't believe it. It's rigged. It's yeah. And she keeps saying you had a, he keeps saying you had a bastard by Polixenes. It's not my child. The one thing about the speech, I mean, I think Garrett, your insight is terrific as always. But you, you know, you said you fell in love with the rhythms of Shakespeare. Yeah. And when we get to Winter's Tale, he's like he's like a jazz musician with yes. at this point. They're not like you know, Love's Labor's Lost rhythms. No, they're all over the place. It's really fascinating to hear you play with that because sometimes there's very regular Rhythmic. and other times yeah. you know you're starting and stopping and changing it, and and the way you're writing that is really beautiful, Miriam. Thank you. I think yes. I think what you're speaking of is that he ends sentences he, in the Winter's Tale in his later plays. He does these things where he he ends sentences uh, in the middle of lines Correct. in the middle of an I of, of uh, a line of uh, pentameter, and that is unusual. And it sort of, it's as if, especially for Leontes, when Leontes starts to go mad, that madness has this sort of, I was going to say herky-jerky quality, but it, it it goes in and out of sense. He'll start a line and he'll he'll move to another thought and move to another thought. For Hermione, I think this is her at her most you know, she, she knows she has to speak clearly with reason. The second speech is less reasoned, right? The one at the end where he said, 
I don't care what you say, then she just sort of lets it all out. But this one is, is tries to be reasoned and she's trying to explain her thoughts in uh, as reasoned as she can be. It's also very public. That's the other thing. Yeah. It's such a public event that she dra- she's dragged out in rags to speak at. Yeah. yeah. And after having just given birth. birth. Yeah. 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 I, I'm, I hate to say this, but I have to pop off because I have a previous appointment at 3.30. So Miriam, it was really lovely meet, meeting you. Nice to meet you. Miriam, before we let you go, I've got another question for you. So one of the fun things about the Winter's Tale and Hermione's journey is that she disappears for 16 years, right? Yes. She, and it's not really explained. It's left to the imagination. What has happened to her? Has she been living in suspended animation? Has she been in self-imposed exile? Has she been in hiding? Who knows? But she's gone for 16 years. And you were at OSF for 16 years, and now you're back in New ha, York ha, City. Ha, ha, ha. That's interesting, yeah. Which must be a really, really important life transition for you. What's it yeah. like? You are you living in an apartment that you owned before yes. going to? Wow, what's that yes. like? It is both strange and familiar, right? It's that thing of like you walk out the door and everything is. I'm in the you know same neighborhood that I left, and you know some of the the shop owners and shopkeepers who are part of the neighborhood are still here, so that feels good to come back and be like, hey, they're like, oh my goodness, hey. you know, that's wonderful. It feels like it's it's a great sort of metaphor tying it into Hermione because I think it is both a death and a rebirth, right? There is something about, wow, something ended and something beginning again. And a coming back to, a return, which Shakespeare talked a lot about in his latest plays and The Tempest as well. There's a return, right, which... I think can be a beautiful thing. Right now, it's both beautiful and scary <laughs> because of the, whew, well, you know, for a long time, uh, I had a community and a company and uh, I, I knew generally what kinds of plays I was going to be doing the next year. And now, and it was always year to year, but now it's, you know, day to day as things are in New York City. So exciting and, and scary at the same time, but but a rebirth yeah. for you. A rebirth, a, a return, like rebirth, return. Those are words that I would use that are apt to descriptions of both Hermione and the Wiltshire's Tale as well. The rebirth and the return to, and the return of the child at the end of the play. The child comes back. Miriam, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you for being our guest on The State of Shakespeare. Yes, thank you. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.